Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today, again, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Eric Helms, who is a legend in the fitness, the fitness sphere. And today we have him back on to talk about some more nuanced topics. So over the last year, we've been building up and covering all the major fundamentals of bodybuilding programming, which I'm really proud that we've been able to put together. And as always, we've been getting lots of positive feedback and everyone wants to see Eric Helms. So as you guys know, I give you guys what you want. So we have him back on the show. Thanks for being here today, Eric. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back, man. So today we're going to be talking about rest periods, lifting tempo, and deloads. And in sort of a systematic fashion, we're also going to be touching on some intensity techniques that will fit into these sorts of categories. And I've been getting some questions about intensity techniques, and it's time to bring them up. So starting off with rest periods, like this is a one of the most common questions I get asked whenever I share a bodybuilding program, people are like, oh, yeah, how long should I be resting? And just yeah, curious to hear your current thoughts on uh, rest periods for hypertrophy, Eric. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, generally, the answer is very simple. And that's just rest as long as you feel you need to recover to be able to perform at your highest level. And for most people, unless you're in like, well, it's going to be exercise specific, rep range specific, and proximity to failure specific, depending on how fatigued you get after a set. Like obviously a set of like a four RPE with six reps on bicep curls is going to be very different than 20 reps on squats to a 10 RPE, right? But um, generally uh, that's going to only take most people like two to four or five minutes, maybe depending on what they just did. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could just leave it there. That said, a lot of people run into logistical constraints regarding how much time they can dedicate to training. Um, or they run into not necessarily logistical constraints, but there are ways to get the same amount of stimulus done in less time without compromising anything for certain types of exercises. So uh, let's let's talk briefly about um, fatigue and what it can come from and what it can affect. So we love uh, fatigue in bodybuilding, right? That's that's sometimes we think we're chasing that. Generally, I think it's a good kind of overall paradigm, a model to think of as hey, we're actually trying to chase performance. Um, but certain types of fatigue can help what we care about. So ultimately, what we want to do is place a progressive tension stimulus on muscle fibers, right? To do that, we have to recruit the muscle fibers. Mm -hmm. So peripheral fatigue is all good. And what I mean by peripheral fatigue, that's fatigue that is uh, generated in your periphery. So that doesn't necessarily just mean your limbs. Let's say you're doing chest flies, right? Um, And as you do more and more reps, it gets harder and harder, you feel a burning sensation and you find it more difficult to keep producing the same amount of force and eventually the set must end. Um, and hopefully you get a sick pump in the process, bro. Um, but, (laughs) but uh, yeah, so what is actually happening there is that through a biochemical cascade of continuing to contract 
and the fatigue generated, which is essentially metabolite accumulation, you no longer can produce the same amount of force and that set ends. Uh, there are essentially, and this isn't exactly the way it works at the, the micro level, but it's a decent way of understanding it. Certain fibers are dropping out of that process and unable to produce the same amount of force. So other fibers must therefore contribute. So if you're using say like uh, your 15 RM and you do 15 reps, you're getting maybe 60 to 70% of all your muscle fibers in your chest uh, that are part of that movement being recruited at the start. And then by the time you get to the end, you're, you're getting all of them. And if you actually go to failure, you're giving a pretty solid stimulus to all of them. Um, what you don't want though, is fatigue that is centrally mediated where there is actual preventing of, of those, some of those fibers getting recruited. So for example, if you were to run a 400 meter sprint do a whole bunch of jumps and just be really, really fatigued, glycogen depleted and come into a workout with muscle damage. I'm thinking of all the different pathways of just what can link and, and cause central fatigue. You wouldn't even be able to recruit some of those fibers to then get that tension stimulus. Mm -hmm. So that's that, 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 that fatigue that I'm talking about uh, is, is what we want to avoid. So in this, you might think like, oh, well, I would never do those things you just described. It's not that different than say coming in and doing three sets of 15 on squats at a high intensity, then doing RDLs, using some of the intensity quote unquote techniques we might talk about supersets, and then trying to do leg extensions. You generate so much global cardiometabolic fatigue uh, that you actually can get um, this kind of centrally mediated fatigue within a session. And you, and you've probably experienced these at some point in your career, or if you've tried training with a buddy who does like more CrossFit style, where all of a sudden your reps and load just start plummeting set to set, you know, you're not losing two reps from a hard set and you rested two minutes, you're losing five, or you got to like each, each, each set drop one down on the stack, you know, um, we don't want that. That, that's not conducive to the goals of bodybuilding, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, that is going to be somewhat dependent on the individual. There is data. We have research from the 2000s showing that um, if you incrementally reduce your rest periods over time, there's a study where they compare a group resting two minutes the whole time, doing a bodybuilding as training program to one that is reducing like by 15 seconds per week, and they go from two minutes down to 30 seconds. They actually had similar gains showing that, yeah, if you're in good enough shape, you won't necessarily get that. Um, so that's not the ideal way to do it, but that's, that's certainly like your, your, your ability to, to, to buffer and uh, efficiently use your energy systems and recover between sets, uh, your ability to basically complete a high density training session, that can mitigate that. But that's not something that is gonna necessarily make you better at bodybuilding. Um, it will prevent uh, you know, that, that from occurring if you're using low rest periods or supersets, but those aren't required or necessarily beneficial. Mm -hmm. So long preamble, but the answer is basically, hey, you want to keep your workout as efficient as possible while avoiding the centrally mediated fatigue. Um, so that means that certain exercises that are less likely to cause this overall uh, you know, like cardiovascular fatigue, you can probably rest shorter periods. So for example, your isolation movements, curls, calf raises, things like that, pretty much all of the drop-offs and reps that you're getting and load you're getting are going to be from those peripheral mechanisms. And it probably won't make a huge difference. So for example, uh, we have studies on uh, drop sets, rest pause sets, kind of like myo reps. 
and when those are done in ice in isolation movements for like the, the limbs, they typically have similar outcomes to traditional training. Uh, however, when you look at rest period studies where they're doing compound movements, there's typically an advantage to longer rest periods. And this might be one of those reasons. So you don't want to compromise volume or load too much, but if it is compromised by this peripheral fatigue is what we're describing, not too big of a deal. So you do, just don't want to get in your own way with rest periods. So that's the, the first part of the answer. Mm -hmm. So you can do things for your isolation movements to make them a little more efficient. You can do drop sets. You can do mile reps slash rest pause. You can just rest shorter periods and have more of a drop off. And so long as you're not out of breath and like, you know, trying to keep your lunch down, you're, that's probably a non-issue. Mm -hmm. If you want to be more efficient on your compounds, though, you have to be a little more savvy. Uh, so definitely, I would not recommend like supersetting, you know, incline bench and bench, right? They're both going to be worse off because of that, because they're compound movements, potentially tiring, and you're going to be getting uh, less volume and intensity than you would if you separated the two, yeah. right? Um, what you could do, though, is you could do back-to-back -back sets like A, B, of bench and row. And that's what's called an antagonist paired set uh, or antagonist paired training. Um, and that is the really the only type of superset that I actually like for mm. compounds um, because the data on it actually suggests that it results in similar or even slightly better total volume performance mm. uh, compared to separating those. And so instead of going A, B, A, B, A, B, bench, row, bench, row, bench, row, uh, the traditional training would go AAA, BBB. And interestingly enough, in the ABAB, about half the studies show similar outcomes. The other half show slightly more volume performed. Hmm. So what's going on here? Um, well, uh, you're training the, the, the antagonist. Uh, so while you're doing the set of bench, the other muscles that are the opposing are, are getting to rest. So you're just, for one, you're just being a little more efficient with your rest time from a local perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the density of how long you're moving and the actual total rest to, to work intervals a little higher uh, when you're doing APT. So you need to be in good shape. But there may be some kind of priming effect where, you know, you're moving through a range of motion, but not actively contracting when you're doing a bench slash a row. Really, they look exactly the same, just flip gravity, right? So you're not resisting load, but maybe it's helping blood flow. Maybe it's acting as some kind of priming effect. Maybe it's creating, uh, you know, inhibition in the in the antagonist, so they don't get in the way as much during your uh, the the opposite exercise. There's some speculative mechanisms. We don't have good data on why this is, but ultimately, doing something like bench row or say lat pull down shoulder press, uh, or on isolations leg extension leg curl or bicep curl tricep push down in an alternating set fashion, where you do one set of one, one set of the other then rest until you're ready and then repeat. That's a good time efficient way that if anything will enhance performance so long as you don't keep that rest interval too short. So that's a useful strategy to try to be more efficient with your time. Both of those rest, pause, drop sets on isolation movements, antagonist paired sets on, on compounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, those are yeah great points. And the way I like to see rest periods is kind of as a, this trade-off between the amount of productive volume you get out of one set versus kind of your time efficiency. So mm -hmm. the, uh, yeah, as you said, you basically just don't want to be putting yourself in a position where you're compromising the amount of reps or volume that you could be getting out of each set. 
But at the same time, if you were taking gargantuan rest periods, you may as well just do more sets as well. So it's kind of yeah, like a bit of a, an optimization. If you were to give like a just kind of blanket recommendation to a beginner, as in terms of like, how long should I rest for various exercises, like say for um, like compounds, your main lifts versus like isolation work, what would you give them? I would generally say auto-regulate it, go when you feel ready. Okay. Um, and if you are auto-regulating it poorly, because that does happen when you're a beginner, um, if you were training like we've talked about in previous episodes, where you're primarily not going to failure, except maybe on like the last set of an isolation movement, if you're seeing reps and load drop off from set one to set two, more than say like a rep or like the lowest load increment drop, and you're going to like a, what you perceive as like a seven to nine RPE, you're probably not resting long enough. Or you'd really just started and you were pretty sedentary before that and give it a couple of weeks and you'll improve your, your work capacity uh, or your uh, set to set recovery, I should say. Um, so I think generally auto-regulate it. What will that amount to for most people is going to be one to three minutes on isolation movements and two to four minutes on compounds, depending on how much shape you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. And yeah, I think you, yeah, you see a lot of people, you know, advocating for just trying to shorten rest periods a lot. But as you said, if your reps are really, really falling off, you're just giving up a lot of volume that you could be getting. Yeah. Talking about the rest pause sets. Yeah, I actually think these like my reps are a great tool that people can use. And we touched on like effective reps and that kind of uh, reasoning in the last episode. So basically the idea is that you take a short rest period and then you continue, basically continue doing more like mini sets after your first mm -hmm. set. And yeah, it sounds like there's some pretty promising research where people will say that you, you get similar results. Practically, it, when you're programming these, how do you equate like set numbers for these? Like if you were, let's say, doing, you know, five uh, rest pause sets, how many like, straight sets would that translate to? You don't. And that, that, that's the weakness of them. When you start using some of these techniques, even the ones that I think do make sense, um, not antagonist paired sets, those you can count normally because you are essentially resting the muscle group. But if you're doing extended set of uh, mini sets, so myo reps, uh, courtesy a la uh, Berge Fagerly, or if you're doing like straight up drop sets where you're actually going to failure, uh, sorry, uh, straight up rest pause sets where you're actually going to failure, resting and doing a few more and going near to failure on each set, uh, each mini set, I should say. Either way, whether you're stopping short of failure, that's kind of the myo rep style is you kind of go to like eight or nine RPE on these and then just keep banging out a bunch. Mm -hmm. um, and then rest, pause, research, uh, the, what little exists, it is going to failure. Um, that seems to work just as effectively as a comparator, which is like, you know, one top set and then like three back offs of mini sets compared to three straight sets. So we know that's probably equivalent, but the thing is, is we don't actually know it's equivalent. We know it's not significantly different in terms of outcomes, right? Which isn't actually the same. Um, so your mileage may vary. Um, I don't want to get into this, the statistical nuances of equivalence testing versus null hypothesis testing. I don't think that would be helpful to people, but essentially my recommendation is, is that once you start to do uh, like rest pause or myo reps, you want to start with a reasonable recommendation, which would be like, you know, one primer and two to three back offs just to start. 
and then compare your performance just to it, right? So if you decide to replace a series of three sets with a, a one plus two or a one plus three, that, that's a good place to start. We have decent data to suggest those are relatively similar. Mm -hmm. And then just track that verse itself. You know, count the total number of reps you're able to get with a certain amount of load. Uh, look, see if you can increase load and keep the primer set in a similar rep range, that type of thing. But you do really have to compare like to like. And that is the downside of using a lot of these so-called intensity techniques is unlike straight sets, they are a little more easy to make it unclear whether you're progressing. You know, you, when you're operating in these kind of post-failure states, when you're dropping down to lower loads, when you're getting partials, all these things to train quote unquote past failure, which I don't think is an accurate description, um, you can kind of keep going. So, so how do you know if it, how effective it is and how it compares to straight sets? I don't know. And, and, I, and the problem is you don't either. So I think it, it makes a trade-off when you're using the techniques I don't advise using to where you can no longer track progress in a, in a meaningful way. And you're just kind of like, did I feel trashed again? You know? And you know, then now we're back to like mid 2000s bodybuilding style training. Um, so, which I don't recommend. Yeah, on a, on a scale of zero to wrecked, how am I right now? Um, exactly. But yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's also a big reason why. Yeah, I like I primarily like programming with straight sets and just kind of using these as a bit of icing on the cake sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of drop sets, actually, I really like using these. I think that um, they're kind of a nice trade off between you know you get a little bit of that metabolic stress without as much added fatigue because you're dropping weight. How do you like to implement those? The same as rest pause, to be honest. So I'm not a big fan of drop sets or rest pause on compound movements. I just find they just generate too much fatigue uh, for the most part. I mean, some compound movements are like a lap pull down. It's a compound movement, but come on, you know. Um, but if we're talking like pressing or, uh, or free weight rowing or squats or deadlifts, no go in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but if we're talking about like like curls or tricep pushdowns, leg extensions, leg curls, calf raises, um, I think you can implement um, drop sets and rest pauses basically the same way. You take it to a high, like a, a moderate to high rep range, not super high, at a moderate to high RPE. We're talking, you know, eight to ten, and then you do multiple sets of somewhere between depending on how heavy the first one was and how fatigued you got and how long you rest before you pick up the next set. I mean, basically with drop sets, you're not really resting any more than it takes to pick up another set of dumbbells or strip a plate off, right? So you're able to keep going because it's lighter. With rest pause, it's the same load, but you're just simply resting a little bit. So it's really accomplishing the exact same thing in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and your body just knows how much force it can produce to keep going, which is going to be slightly diminished on each drop or each rest pause. So I think they can be used interchangeably. Um, but again, you just want to compare like to like. So if you do drop sets, you want to do the same drops and you want to use them on isolation movements. If you do rest pauses, you want to do the same number of rest pauses uh, for the same amount of time period. They're like three breaths each time, not like, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 30 seconds, then you can get a lot more performance so that you can actually track that progress. So I generally do, um, you know, if my, my, my training tends to be mostly consistent of compound exercises and then one to two isolations at the end. And I find that because the compounds take so much out of me, I like to do some of these techniques on the isolations because 
I can go, all right, sweet. I'm out of here in a minute, you know, and I've got, you know, one set and three drops with 15 secs with just the time it takes to pick them up or slightly more time than that with 15 second rest between each one of those mini sets. Um, and then I just kind of track that independently. Um, drop sets are nice if you just want to go lighter, you know, something that bothers your joints a little more, um, kind of the same way you can use BFR. Uh, BFR is also another nice fast way of yeah. where you traditionally use, you know, lower rest, rest intervals, like 30 to 60 seconds, because you're just trying to get a lot of that uh, metabolite accumulation going and let it, keeping it trapped there. And it also forces you to use low loads for similar reasons. And your recovery is even worse because you can't actually get the metabolites out at the same rate. So they're all really kind of the same thing. You know, we're trying to manipulate the type of fatigue we want, not the type of fatigue we don't want. And they should probably be restricted primarily to isolation movements and they get it done quick, efficiently, and seem to be just as good as straight sets. So yeah, BFR, drop sets, uh, rest pause slash myo reps, great tool on the, uh, on the isolations. I will say you can do those on compounds, but you have to drop the RP a bit, the RPE a bit. You have to drop the reps a bit. Um, and it's, I think it's actually harder, like doing, um, myo reps on squats or like pressing or something like that. It's great if you're like, I only have half an hour to train, right? But it is brutal, you yeah. know, because just, just imagine like if you do three sets of 10 with, let's say your 12, your 12 rep max, the last, you know, three reps to four reps on each set is a grind. You're essentially just only doing those reps for, for all of your mini sets after the, after the activation set when you're doing myo reps. And that's not too bad when it's curls, but when we're talking about doing like leg press or something, it's pretty yeah. fucking hard. <laughs> so, um, I find that's okay for like a, a three week mesocycle where, you know, you're going to have limited time or that's what you're going to focus on, but to train like that regularly on the main lifts, I think is, it, it ends up being more burnout for less volume. So it's kind of a trade-off that I don't think you get the long end of that stick most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know that if you're like stumbling on the gym floor and you're only mid-workout, that something's a bit off. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah, that was awesome treatment of rest periods. And moving on to lifting tempo, mm. this is another thing where there are some juicy questions that come up. Um, namely, first of all, time under tension, I think is a very, you know, debated kind of topic in bodybuilding what are your thoughts of sort of how to approach this concept? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's first, it's useful to talk to why people promote the idea of time under tension. Um, and the issue with it is normally have, they have this very binary view of being under tension or not. Right. So if I'm doing a set of 20 or a set of five, that's time under tension. And if you're really focused on the time component, like all the sets of 20 is better. Um, and like, so another way to look at this is if we think about what causes more metabolic stress, right? We think high rep sets. Yeah. You'd agree with that, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm guessing, but what causes now think about it this way. What causes more metabolic stress, the first rep of your five rep max or the first rep of a 20 rep max. Mm -hmm. The first rep of the five. Absolutely. Right. Because it's, it's, it's a more stressful set. You're doing more work. So this idea that, you know, high rep sets cause more metabolic stress, it's a totally different pathway. Uh, and, you know, like it's, it's about time under tension and accumulating fatigue. It kind of operates under some, some blind spots. 
Like if you think about it from a per rep fatigue, of course, the heavier you go causes more fatigue. You know, mm -hmm. um, it requires more, more muscle fibers to be recruited to produce the force to do the first rep of that 5RM. And therefore, there must be more metabolic byproducts of producing that energy. Mm -hmm. um, the first rep of the set of, tw uh, of 20 is nothing. It's just that once you've done all 20 reps, there's, there's more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so we basically what I'm getting at is that when you focus strictly on, on the time under tension, you're forgetting about the magnitude of tension. And when you look at studies where people slow down the tempo to try to increase the time under tension, mm -hmm. they actually find themselves sometimes producing less total work. And I mean that in the physics calculation of, yep. you know, like distance times load times uh, uh, num number of total repetitions. Because when you start purposely slowing down contractions, you can actually fatigue faster than you otherwise would and end up producing less total work. So if you are actually thinking about volume and load and progression, you've kind of got time and attention taken care of. That's sort of calculated into volume. That's not something you really need to worry about. Mm -hmm. Now, what we do need to worry about is, is how do we get the most out of each rep, right? So there are a couple things that can happen when people perform bodybuilding training and not even realize that that can be sabotaging their gains a little bit. Um, so... The deadlift is a great example. We talked about this in our exercise selection episode. Because you are really only focusing on the concentric, it starts from the floor, and then you just take it back down. It's very easy to let gravity do most of that work. However, the eccentric action or the eccentric phase of any repetition contributes just as much stimulus as the concentric. It's literally half the volume. Yeah. So if you let gravity do that, you're actually losing a stimulus during that phase and getting roughly half of it, which I think is a much bigger issue for the deadlift than the fact that parts of it's isometric, it's a limited range of motion, all that stuff, is that it's just not controlled on the eccentric most of the time, which is why people love RDLs, which is essentially the same range of motion, same movement as a conventional, just slightly more uh, in, in the heels and, and knees shifted back kind of focus. Um, but you get to control the eccentric on each rep because you start out of the rack. You don't go all the way to the floor most of the time unless you've got really good flexibility or you're just doing it wrong. Um, and <laughs> that's, you know, that, that's, that's the main critique there. So you want to have control on the eccentric. And then also you want to have a forceful concentric. And another thing that happens is when people get too focused on time under tension, they slow down the concentrics. They can, they can extend the set. Mm. But as soon as you slow down the concentric, now we have to think about physics again. Okay, you're taking the same load, maybe you might have to go lower to do this type of technique, and it's moving slower. Why is it moving slower? Well, because you put less of an impulse into it, so it's accelerating slower, and then and the, the product of velocity is less. So something's moving slower, you've put less force into it. Okay, so how do muscles generate force? Contraction. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you are moving the same load slower, you are contracting fewer muscle fibers mm. per rep. So now we've sacrificed the magnitude of tension for this time under tension. Now, so long as you go to failure in the end, it probably doesn't matter. But the thing is, is when you're doing this time under tension tempo style training, you define failure differently. Like if you, like, like let's, let's talk about the, the folks who are doing art. Four second concentric, one second pause, four sets, four second eccentric. Mm -hmm. Normally, at least in the literature, and maybe not always in the real world, Failure exists when you can no longer maintain that tempo, right? So if you start mm. speeding up, 
that's it. You know, you're done. So you artificially create failure earlier, earlier and produce less force per rep. Not great, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So how do we avoid this? And that's basically make your concentrics forceful, but still under control. Don't break the rules, quote unquote, of the technique. You know, don't don't move it so quickly for it to be so light that it's like has momentum. It's like jumping out of your hands. You know, don't if you can jump with a bar on your back, you need to go heavier on your squats. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the eccentric, make sure it's under control. And that's essentially all you got to do for bodybuilding. Um, what that looks like from an observer is that the concentric speed will be load dependent. So if you're going really, really heavy, you can't move it fast. If you're going really, really light, it'll actually be more explosive and, and, and move faster. Um, and of course, light in the bodybuilding context, we're talking probably not lighter than 60, 65% of one RM. So it'll be a fast moving pace. Um, and then when you're doing sets of six or whatever, like at 80, 85% of one RM, it'll be slower because it's a heavier load. So you have to overcome uh, you know, the load. And so it has, you have to generate enough inertia to get it moving and it's slow. So, and then the eccentric will probably always be the same speed because you are much stronger eccentrically than concentrically. If you ever watched the powerlifting meet, unless someone got out of position, they can always lower the load on bench and squat. They're gonna be able to touch their chest, get the press command, get stuck. You know, they get the squat command, they lower themselves into the hole, try to come out and get stuck. You don't see people walk out and just, you know, get smashed by the weight mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, unrack it and just get pinned immediately. Not in the powerlifting meet. You will see that on YouTube, but that's, <laughs> those aren't trained powerlifters. Yeah, hopefully not in a meet. <laughs> yeah. And that's because, and we have studies on this, like, so, okay, so how much can you lower under control compared to actually contracting and lifting? And that's about 120 to 140% of your concentric 1RM. So if you're a, if you can squat 405, you can probably lower 500 pounds under control and then get pinned terribly, you know, (laughs) with some measure of control. Right. Uh, And that's actually a trainable trait. So what that means is that even when you're hitting concentric failure, you can still lower it under control. So all of your reps should have some element of eccentric control, whether they're with 60, 65% of 1RM, 80, 85, 90% of 1RM. And you should have a forceful concentric that will have a variable tempo and speed based upon how heavy it is. Mm-hmm. And that's all you got to do. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, great treat. Yeah, great explanation. And I think that, yeah, with the time and retention concept, I've never liked it because I think, as you said, it's it's basically just a, you know, a slightly, you know, lower level of uh, depth that if you just go to the fundamental variables of like total volume and breaking down volume into like sets times reps times weight, and thinking about kind of the the work you're doing in terms of load versus distance you're lifting and then looking at rep ranges you will basically cover time and retention and as long as you are in the like sort of practical rep ranges that we like to talk about for bodybuilding then you're going to be fine um yeah i guess it's just kind of a little little adjunct you know you know facet that you can use to rationalize why you know, different rep ranges can also work. In terms of going into some of the, you know, aspects of the the lifting movement with eccentrics, people like to talk about doing, you know, specific eccentrics where they will try and like lift a heavier weight and then focus on the eccentric. Classic example being cheat curls. What are your thoughts on using those? 
we need more research on this because I think this is actually a pretty interesting topic. Because just like I said, when you hit failure, you actually still have eccentric reserve. Mm-hmm. So like if you wanted to be a really hardcore, let's get the most out of every single possible set, you'd bring the spotter in and have them help you on the concentric yeah. until you could no longer lower the eccentric under control and you will have completely exhausted the, the, the muscle. I don't think that's better for the record. <laughs> I think that would result in so much fatigue. And, and actually there's, 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 there's some mechanistic data that would suggest, you know, the, the more fatigue you dump into a single set, you are increasing the potential stimulus, but you're also increasing like the counter stimulus. You know, you're digging, you're effectively digging a, a recovery hole that may not be, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and there's signaling, basically there, there's increases in both anabolic and catabolic signaling, and you're probably not getting the, the, the long end of the stick there. Um, and that's, that's very hypothetical. That's like looking at, at mechanistic research on animals and we don't fully have this data in humans. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, we don't have this data on heavy eccentrics in, uh, in humans, just from like a, an applied training perspective, we have a little bit, but not much. Okay. And most of it, and probably the application is more interesting for strength. In my opinion, mm-hmm. the idea here is, okay, you've hit a plateau on bench, you bench 315, but you can lower to your chest under control, uh, you know, 365, right? So would it be beneficial to get a, you know, a competent spotter? help you unrack, lower 365 to your chest and have them give you the bro spot as much as they can on the way up. Um, the data is mixed on this as to whether it's beneficial or not. And I think the potential utility is in people who are already pretty strong and hitting a plateau because it's very difficult to get like, it's basically an overload stimulus. You know, it'd be like a slingshot. It would be like, uh, you know, a raw lifter squatting in uh, knee wraps. We'll just give you another like five, 10% on your squat. Um, it's a great way to uh, like feel the load through the full range of motion and be able to lift it. Um, and I think eccentrics are, are interesting because the other overload techniques, they actually change where you're contributing force. So like a slingshot is great because you get to, you know, unrack a heavier load and start to lower it. But as soon as you're about halfway through, and you're at the point where the load is most challenging for a uh, unequipped lifter, you now you're getting assistance. So that's not great. You know, like you're the sticking region for almost all raw ventures is in the first couple inches off the chest or right on the chest, which is when the slingshot helps you. But an eccentric contraction, you get the full range just on the eccentric phase. And there's pretty good carryover between eccentric and concentric. Um, I wouldn't recommend this just off the bat if someone has never done it before, because you are using heavier loads than your body's accustomed to, you know, you're going to be, you know, like some of the actual structural adaptations may not be there to support that load. I think it's probably higher risk for repetition. Like if you were a 315 bencher and you're handling 365 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the, I, I have actually had a minor chest injury from doing overload eccentrics on bench. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had minor chest injuries from just training. So it should happens, but, yeah. um, but I, I, I have actually had some success with power lifters in using eccentric overload, uh, in certain movements. Um, and you run into the practical issues like squats, like really, like that sounds dangerous, you know, um, deadlifts, like you're going to have to have people like load plates <laughs> on the sides while you lower it, strip them yeah. and then lift it. And I've done that. And it's a huge pain in the ass. So it's, wow. 
without specialized equipment, it's really challenging on things that aren't like, you know, pressing. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if it has much utility for bodybuilding in my opinion, um, because you would do it typically for bodybuilding purposes, the way it's been done to extend a set and get a kind of level of fatigue that's beyond even going to failure, which I don't think is beneficial, but for powerlifting, and I know that's not the focus of this podcast, uh, and for developing strength, I think we need more research as it, as it might prove in certain scenarios to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's cool to see, you know, when you kind of get to these topics that are kind of on the, the edge of the research sphere that yeah. we have so far. One other thing with regards to lifting tempo is pauses. So I know a lot of people with strength goals might want to try using pause sets for, you know, strength development as well. But what are your thoughts on that for hypertrophy? Like, let's say someone was doing paused squats and maybe, maybe they're relatively like very low rep counts, but uh, yeah. Yeah. What would you think? I think it's, it's, it's actually not a bad idea at all for bodybuilding. Okay. So um, pauses. So, so for those who aren't familiar with it, we have what's called the stretch, stretch shortening cycle, the SSC. Um, and that is when a concentric action, so the lifting phase, comes right after the lowering phase. Uh, and this generally results in slightly higher force production. So for example, if someone is to do, uh, if you just kind of go into a squat position, stop for a second and then jump as high as you can, you won't jump as high normally compared to if you do what's called a counter movement jump, which is the way most people like square up and try to go for like say a rebound. Mm -hmm. off the backboard like if i tell you to jump as high as you can you'll go down and up right mm -hmm. that's just a natural inclination for everybody and that creates through a number of mechanisms that i don't think it's worth getting into which are actually debated but nonetheless that produces a little extra boost um and some of this is just related to uh the, the elastic the elastic components of the muscle tendon unit contributing to force production so like the same thing could be said of you know bouncing out of the hole on a squat, you know, you notice that people kind of get this nice compression force and they're at pretty high velocity and then they hit a stick point and then they keep going. You'll especially see this in uh, Olympic lifters and high bar squatters. Um, and you will see this much less in, uh, you know, like low bar squatters from, you know, kind of a traditional more approach to powerlifting. So that is probably great for performance you know, getting really good at utilizing all of the muscle tendon unit to produce force. And that's the way athletic tasks are done. Mm -hmm. um, however, that's not training the, like the actual contractile elements yeah. of the muscle. So um, not that I think you, you're not losing anything by using a stretch shortening cycle, to be clear, because you make it up by being able to lift heavier load, you're still training through the full range of motion. And we're talking like a couple inches of, of the range where it's not like the muscles go go relaxed, you know, they're still active. They're just also getting the benefit of the, uh, of, of getting the contractile and the non-contractile elastic element, both helping force production. So you're losing nothing by doing it traditionally and having a bounce out of the squat hole or whatever, but you don't lose anything by eliminating it either, theoretically. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing, you know, squats where you just go right up and then right back down. Uh, what if you pause in the hole for a second, eliminate the stretch shortening cycle because it dissipates under actually a quite short amount of time and then come back up. Mm. Bad for the ego, because now what have you done? You've got to take 10% off the bar 
may be good from a longevity standpoint mm -hmm. if you don't want to lift as heavy loads or if it's certain heavy loads you get pain or, or discomfort. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with going through the process of any, any movement that has a stretch shortening cycle, just having a slight pause at the bottom. You'll have to cut your loads down on, across the board. Uh, and, but if you're not interested in strength at all, and if you're thinking, you know, I would actually like to use lighter loads and get a similar stimulus, I could see that being a totally viable uh, thing to do for, for a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, I like the kind of indirect application of using it to lightly lower weights used mm -hmm. and kind of uh, lower the amount of fatigue generated. Yeah. So, I, I, and by the way, I do actually like to use this technique that for the same reason for powerlifters, especially like, like if they've had eight months and they did like regionals, nationals, international comp, and we've just been, you know, this all, you know, they're axial, axially loading with two times their body weight for the vast majority of the year. A great way to hold on to their muscle, hold on to the patterns without altering it too much and giving them a nice break. Hell, man, like, three second pause in the whole slow eccentric BFR high bar squat for someone who was doing yeah. normal low bar and you've cut them down to like 50% of one RM, but they're still getting a hard training session, you know, and that's a great way to keep them in the gym, not lose much, uh, but give them a break on what they were really overloading for, you know, like that post comp period, nice, like uh, from a periodization perspective, that's a nice transition. Mm -hmm. Also a way to drop the hammer on someone who's getting too cocky. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I um, just want to take a moment and plug the 3DMJ vault. It's a great resource for bodybuilding and strike knowledge. Uh, what's the latest product that you guys have out? Yeah. So this is pretty cool. Um, Brandon, our, our video editor and podcast editor and all things uh, graphic design for, for 3DMJ. Uh, he flew out to Berto's place in Colorado, and they filmed a full video course called Prep Positioning. And this is something that um, we've, for, like for most of the time as a, as a bodybuilding coach, what you deal with is trying to fix the not perfect scenario. Someone comes to you, they're 30 pounds over, and they got 16 weeks to get ready. And you're like, whew, this is going to be really tight, you know? Yeah. Um, or someone comes to you and they look great. And they have enough time, but they're already eating what you would consider like really low calories because they've kind of been like just kind of living the prep life all the time. So how do we get them to a place where they're actually healthy enough mentally and physically to actually start a contest prep? Um, or, you know, they compete back to back years and they really want to improve last season, but they're a natural competitor in their intermediate phase and they're just not giving themselves enough time to grow. Mm -hmm. Um so we cover all of that in prep positioning. Like what's the best way to set yourself up for success? So it's not about necessarily just contest prep. It's about positioning yourself to have a successful prep. And if we could wave a magic wand and each one of the clients who dropped this in application came to us, what they would know for the couple of years in advance of the actual prep. So how do you make sure your off season's efficient? How do you start in the strongest position possible? Not too heavy, but also not dieted. And then how would you set up your contest prep so you can maintain as much muscle as possible, be in the healthiest position to actually get on stage, not looking like you collapsed across the finish line. So Berto absolutely killed it. And right now people can get that for, I think it's, well, I'm not sure when this podcast comes out, but uh, it's, it's on sale for at least the rest of this week uh, or three days, I think from now. Um, but for those who this comes out afterwards, you can also get access to it and all 
courses in the vault now because we have a new VIP membership that's subscription based. So check hmm. it out, 3dmjvault.com. That's awesome. Yeah, that's literally what I needed when I, you know, before I did my first prep. I think that a lot of success in bodybuilding preps isn't what you do necessarily during the prep itself, but like how you set up for the prep, like in the year before and kind of what position you went into starting out. So I highly recommend. Going on to one last thing. Well, yeah, I wanted to talk about deloads. So I think mm. this is a really important uh, topic, especially for the people on this podcast who are going to be the more serious and slightly more advanced athletes in my audience. So yeah, I think that uh, it's definitely something that I wish I had knew when I was getting starting to get serious and running into a lot of overuse kind of type injuries. Mm. Um, how would you recommend people deload and how often? Yeah, it very much depends on your training paradigm. Yeah. Um, I think most people will end up deloading either every fourth, well, not either, not either, but in the spectrum of every fourth to like every 10th week, somewhere in that range. Uh, and the reason why there's variability to this is because it comes down to, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to get an adaptation. Well, how do we adapt? We have to produce overload. We have to produce specific overload. Okay, we're doing that through lifting weights. We talked about fatigue earlier in this podcast. Uh, that fatigue doesn't only just have effects within session, but it also can linger. One thing I mentioned was that if you're in the presence of a lot of muscle damage, that can actually cause central inhibition. So we like to put fatigue into these nice reductionist boxes in sports science, mm -hmm. but in reality, there's a ton of overlap. So like, like it, glycogen depletion, we typically think of as a as energy system fatigue, right? We have less glycolytic fuel, so we will be poor at performing things that are dependent upon the energy system. However, before we're actually fully glycogen depleted, we start to see decrements in performance. So this hmm. peripheral source of fatigue being low in glycogen actually has a feedback signal that reduces performance centrally. So low glycogen, central fatigue can be interdependent on that and caused by it. Same thing with muscle damage. So you can see reduced central drive to the motor neurons, which control muscle fibers, which have a lot of damage. So when you come back two days after a crushing leg workout and you go, you know what, I want to do it again, your performance will be down, not just because of some of the local muscle damage actually interfering with the contractile process, but also due to some central mechanisms of fatigue. In addition to all that, you don't just get to train your muscles in isolation. We talked about, you know, rest, pause, uh, drop sets, and, you know, pausing in the hole and altering tempo to reduce load so that we are just putting less overall strain on the body. We talked about the muscle tendon unit. You know, our muscles are attached to tendon, which are attached to bone. Mm -hmm. So in the process of lifting to make your muscles grow, it's inevitable that you will get some injuries that are not necessarily related directly to the muscle. They could be joint related. Um, they could be, you know, straining yourself, picking up plates and all that stuff. But the act of doing a bodybuilding program, while it's very low risk compared to most uh, other activities, you're going to get some joint and soft tissue injuries that when your muscles are actually ready to go, but it's tendon or joint related and ligament, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have aches and pains. Uh, you can have, you know, glycogen depletion, uh, you can have uh, muscle damage, 
And all of these things, and also, by the way, guess what pain does? Pain results in central inhibition. (laughs) So sometimes you will see these very reductionist arguments of saying, listen, deloads aren't really necessary as like a regular standard thing, because this is the type of fatigue that, that resistance training causes, cite mechanistic study looking at one aspect, and force production you know, comes back at this point, and it's like an isokinetic dynamometer study or whatever, but they're not thinking about everything that goes into it. You know, okay, we're doing, we're training full body, or I mean, we're, we're training the full body across a week, not an isolated muscle. It is causing joint stress. It is causing glycogen depletion. It is causing muscle damage. All of those things can be linked to central fatigue. And we're also having to exert the mental effort and will to do that. And when we're actually experiencing psychological, uh, if you will, will depletion, uh, which we could debate whether that's actually the way it works, but nonetheless, it takes effort to produce effort. And when you are in a psychological state of um, poor arousal or fatigue, perceived fatigue, that actually reduces performance as well. So all of these things result in poor performance. And one of the ways to deal with that is to reduce the effort required to put into training and to lower the stimulus so that there is less overload, but sufficient to maintain where you have have gotten to so that you can recover and then repeat that process. Mm -hmm. Now, in a theoretical model of training where you get it perfect and the overload stimulus is just enough to produce what you need and you have it set up in such a way that you have perfect recovery, you would never need to deload, but we can't do that. And we also need to remember that there's the, the biopsychosocial model of everything, you know, like we can't quantify all of the things that induce poor recovery. Uh, you take a look at studies on college students during exams. Um, those athletes tend to get hurt more often and ill more frequently. If you look at college students who report more life stress when they're put on a resistance training program, they make strength gains at a slower pace than those who report less. Healing rates are lower in people who are stressed compared to those who are not. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this is subjective psychological stress, right? So ultimately, we don't have control over all of the inputs that uh, modify the recovery time course. So all we can really do is reduce the input to the stimulus that produces overload. And that's a deload. And that's why every sports science uh, approach to every sport that I'm aware of that has an SNC component includes what we would call light weeks, unloads, deloads, or it's just built into the periodization model. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at the various phases, one of them is basically easy training for recovery, mm-hmm. you know, after the peak. So um, the traditional way of doing that in bodybuilding or resistance training in general is you reduce volume primarily, and that's kind of built on the tapering literature where you can, you know, maintain one to two thirds of your volume and you will see strength go up, which basically means you've maintained sufficient fitness while fatigue drops. Um, and, uh, and that can, or doesn't need to come with a slight load reduction. I think for, uh, the purposes of not tapering for strength, but for bodybuilding, I think you can definitely have load reductions on the table. You know, for example, if you're experiencing joint pain and we're not trying to maintain max strength, we're trying to maintain muscle size, then lowering load and lowering volume a little less, instead of going like two thirds of normal volume and almost the same loads, you might go, I'm going to take my loads down to 70% and just cut one third of my volume. 
totally valid. And that's what most bodybuilding deloads look like. You know, they go from three sets per exercise at a seven to nine RPE to two sets per exercise at like a five to seven RPE. You know, it's basically just an easy week of training and you do a little bit less. Um, those are the traditional ways of doing it. There are a lot of other ways to do it. And I think a lot of the times it's better to use the other ways because they can be more psychologically advantageous. And we can talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, that's a really practical approach. I think that, you know, seeing deloads as the, you know, your major purpose is that you want to draw fatigue, try to ward off like, chronic injuries from starting to set in while still maintaining muscle. Um, yeah, one thing I actually want to ask as well is um, just based on the literature, just to reassure people, how long can you go without training before you lose muscle? Oh, yeah, a good amount of time. Yeah, so one to two weeks with doing Zippo, and, and you, you, there's, not, there's no detectable muscle loss even in trained individuals. And the amount that you need to maintain is also silly. It's like a third or less of your current training volume will likely maintain muscle mass. And that is for, for like long, like two weeks, uh, sorry, two months, you know, there's probably a certain point where you'll start to decay. Um, and you will notice changes earlier that aren't real. So if you stop, if you, if you reduce your training volume by 70%, you're not going to re retain the same levels of muscle glycogen, but you won't yeah. actually see muscle fib like myofibular losses. Um, it'll, you'll, you'll see, like, you'll look flatter. Uh, you'll look smaller, but it's not real. It'll come back real quick. So I think that gets in people's heads pretty fast is they, they lose the associated glycogen and water. Um, and, you know, due to that unfamiliarity with the movements, you can also see your strength dip. So you're, you do, you will get strong, you know, smaller and weaker, but it's something that is actually completely recoverable within like 48 hours. And you didn't actually lose anything if we were to like chuck in a Dex or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess one question that followed from falls from that is, you know, if we look at deloads as just purely dropping fatigue and maintaining muscle and we can maintain muscle while doing nothing for a week, why not just take a week off? That's totally valid. I don't really have an issue with that. Yeah. I do think that people, sometimes they look at deloads as too formulaic. Like they won't think about how much overload and fatigue that I induce. And that is what, how much of a deload I should do. So people who just automatically take a week off, I think that's fine if you're busting your ass. That's totally fine. That's like the old school bodybuilding approach. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Hmm. Like train hard for six weeks and then take a week off. Or I, like, I knew some people who did it even less frequently than that. Like you know, I kill myself for every six months and then I take a week off, you know? Um, but uh, I think, I think you certainly can. Um, and I think the reason why I don't dislike that that much, even though it's not necessary and may not be like super optimal or whatever, is that, so the reason why I'm cool with it is because people hate the traditional deload of going to a five to seven RP and just doing two sets the, even if they know better intellectually in their soul as a bodybuilder, they feel like, why am I in the gym <laughs> to just go in here and sandbag? You know, this feels like a waste of time. I don't enjoy it. And, you know, a funny thing would happen to me and a lot of my clients is they would go into the deload and they would feel weak. And they would often treat me like I was some kind of guru. Like, how did you know I needed a deload? Like I felt decent last week and you said oh, okay let's do a deload just in case i came in everything felt hard even though i dropped the load 10 percent. the reason why it was hard is because you came to the gym 
hating the idea of, of, of doing an easy ass workout. So there's no, like if you were just benching 225 and you come in the next week and you do 185, you don't have the same level of arousal. And all of a sudden 185 feels like 205. And you're like, oh shit, I guess I needed a deload. Yeah. No, you didn't. You just went to the gym with no motivation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and like a lot, like sometimes people will not take their, their pre-workout during a deload, you know, take a nice little caffeine break. So they go into it unaroused and like everything is basically setting them up for poor performance because they are not, they're not scared by their workout. So they don't, you know, lift themselves up to the level of arousal they need to complete it. Um, and then they feel weak and they think, oh, I needed a deload. Well, in reality, it's, it's just you're, you don't want to be there in the first place. So I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a week off. Another solution, and what I actually like to do in most cases is, I don't know, like to do in most cases, but for people who struggle psychologically with deloads, and I, am, I, I include myself in that, mm -hmm. I cut my number of training sessions down yes. substantially. So like I train five days a week normally. On a deload, I train three days a week. So right now I do, and this is just an example, I often do switch to more full body, but right now I'm doing like three uppers and two lowers. Mm. So for my deloads, I do two uppers and one lower. And I have them basically the same as normal. And I'm trying to progress and moving it forward. However, it is 60% of the volume I normally do because I've cut out, well, it's 50% of my lower body volume, right? And it's two thirds of my upper body volume. So it is, it is a reduction in volume, but I've allowed myself, I still need to be psychologically ready to go for the days I come in. Um, and I normally space it out such that I can like take the first day of the week off. So like if I normally train uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'll go like Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. So the first day of the week is off. It would not normally be there. So I start that, that recovery process. Uh, and then I'm not as, you know, cause if I'm psychologically beat up for my hard day of training, huh, oof, I just got 48 hours off. I never have that. You know, I'm used to just having 24 hours off from Wednesday and Sunday. Mm -hmm. So now I've had Sunday and Monday off. I'm reasonably fresh for Tuesday and it's just going to be a, you know, an upper body workout. It won't be that hard, but I, I still go, go in. And then it's, it's not until Thursday when I'm doing my first lower body session when it's normally Tuesday. So I can still bring some intensity and some effort and get aroused for those sessions, but it's still a nice reduction in volume. Um, and the only other time I don't do that, uh, or I will do something in addition to that is if I'm actually feeling like joint pain, and then I will change exercises, uh, or even remove something like squats or deadlifts or whatever is the source of that and replace it with something else. Uh, but if I'm good to go from a musculoskeletal perspective, uh, then I will just reduce the number of training sessions so I can still bring intensity. But I, I, like, I feel like I trained hard that week. I had more free time. I got a nice mental break. Uh, and I also got the, all the, the on-paper benefits of, of you know, a volume reduction because I reduced volume by not training as much. But none of the sessions themselves suffered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I yeah. love that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's exactly what I do and I, what I recommend. So I usually, you know, I train four days a week. So when I'm deloading, I usually cut my volume in half. So I'll just drop it to two sessions. And that way your Easy. sessions still feel, you know, somewhat substantial and you're still in the gym for a significant period of time and you can um, still, you know, get a lot of extra time that week to do other things, which I think is important for sustainability. And I actually also like yeah, what you mentioned about switching up exercises, I actually do that a lot during my deload weeks is where I will kind of 
oh, I'm, I deal a lot with connective tissue stuff, like 10, my tendons are, I'm just like a path at this point. But uh, so I'm always just like, so I always basically have to switch up my exercises and drop weight quite a bit. Um, and I actually find it's a kind of a nice time to experiment with other exercises that I've like been feeling like I've, I'm thinking of implementing in my next muscle cycle. So there's that as well. Um, I think the only kind of argument that I see is that for you know, people who are have strength goals is that they kind of want to keep their technical adaptations for at least, you know, their main lifts, um, which probably applies more. Yeah, as depending on your strength goals and how advanced you are. So as people get more advanced, their technique is probably more solid. Easy ways around that, by the way. Yeah. So hmm. um, it comes down to the question, if you're, let's say, a power lifter and you need a, a deload yeah. is, all right, am I experiencing joint pain? Like, am I, are my hips achy? Is my lower back sore? Mm -hmm. um, if the answer is no, then, okay, I'm just going to have a single at a five, six, or seven RPE on the main lifts once this week. And that is definitely sufficient to maintain skill. Okay. And it takes just a little bit to work up to. And it's not that hard. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had two squat sessions, uh, you know, three bench sessions and one deadlift session, and those are all reasonably challenging. Now, all you do is you come in and just work up to a single once on each, no volume, no back off work, then everything else is just like hypertrophy work um, and fewer total sets. But if you go, oh, I am having joint pain, that's when you suck it up and you go, okay, I'm going to skip my main lifts for a week because trust me, whatever you lose and, and not having a week of practice, you're going to gain and not being hurt by the lifts you're trying to practice. Yeah. Um, because we talked about how pain can uh, create, you know, force production inhibition. It can also change motor patterns. You know, we have studies showing that when you have delayed onset muscle soreness, practicing dart throwing, you don't actually improve compared to if, if you're practicing dart throwing when you don't have uh, muscle soreness, which is an interesting study we reviewed in mass. I know it doesn't sound like exactly the same, but the point being is you're distracted. Your, your tempo and your motor patterns are typically altered if you're in pain. Um, and that's so you, like, yeah, theoretically, it'd be great to practice it. But if you're in pain, are you practicing the movement or are you altering it so much or so distracted that you're not really getting functional and beneficial practice? So just take the week off of, of that lift. Yeah, no, yeah, that's wise advice. And, you know, as we get more experience, you, the more you realize how important it is to like protect your joints, <laughs> you Absolutely. Know, smash yourself. Um, yeah. So one last thing I wanted to cover was, I guess, in terms of more nuanced applications of deloads is um, some people will talk about like just doing muscle specific deloads rather than mm. systemic deloads. What are your thoughts? I think that's fine if that's the limit of your, your issues. And this is something I've, I've, I've disagreed and debated with Menno before on yeah. the Revive Stronger podcast. <laughs> yeah. And I brought up the same rationale for deloads here. It's we, if you think too reductionist about the sources of fatigue, you forget that you have to lift weights with your whole body to, 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 to do that. You know, like um, there are times when a muscle or even movement specific deload is all you need. But there are times when that is not the case, when you notice that you are just generally psychologically burned out uh, or that that muscle group is overlapping with others because, you know, like a lot of them work together or you, like you might have joint pain or, or, or issues that affect other movements as well. So it can work when it works, but I don't think it is a 
I don't think that should be used in lieu of ever doing full deloads unless your training is like maybe for like a men's physique competitor who literally doesn't train lower body uh, or like a bench press only athlete who doesn't do do any accessory training. I could see that being the case just because you're going to have less overall demands. You can have more specific uh, recovery strategies. Um, what I think is probably more useful, but kind of along that same vein of, you know, when there's an issue, we address it and we address it specifically is to have an auto-regulated deload schedule. So uh, that's actually something I use now. And it's in the second edition of my books, instead of just going on a regular schedule, which I think sometimes just reduces the over the over overall overload. But, uh, and uh, maybe when certain people are, are not needing it yet is to do like a little bit of a checklist and go through uh, whether or not it's needed and have like, I, I do a very simple one with yes or no questions. Um, actually, I have it written down, so I'll, I'll say it out loud since we have the internet to help us. Yeah, awesome. But like, it, yeah, at the end of each block, I have athletes uh, just go through a checklist of five questions and just yes or no to each one. And if you answer yes to two or more questions, then we go, all right, let's do a deload. Am I dreading the gym? And that's actually one of the most closely associated and frequently associated things that have to do uh, with overtraining syndrome. And that is loss of, of motivation. Okay. So if, if, if you're a bodybuilder, you know, you decided <laughs> or, or a powerlifter or recreational, otherwise you're doing a very strange activity for fun that most people consider something they need to pay someone hundred dollars an hour to help to, to force them to do, you know, it'd be like, I love going to the dentist. Let's do it three times a week. You know? So I think if you are actually not enjoying training, that's often a sign, not always, because you might be maybe just dealing with some depression for outside of the gym related stuff. But um, if you're dreading the gym, that that's a potential sign. Is your sleep worse than normal? Also in the overtraining literature, we see that this is both a cause and an effect of overtraining. So obviously if you're not sleeping as much, that's gonna impede your recovery and that's not great. Um, and if you're, if you're really, really pushing yourself hard, that can actually disrupt sleep a little bit. Are your loads actually decreasing, right? So there is a, like, if, if load is decreasing and you deload and then it comes back, that's called functional overreaching. If load is decreasing, you deload and then it's still down, that's called non-functional overreaching. But ultimately, whether it's overtraining, non-functional or functional overreaching, part of it is if your loads are, if you're getting weaker over time. Um, and that's okay in the short term, so long as you have a repeated history of, okay, I recover and then I get stronger. Um, but it is a sign that you're overloading and, and accumulating more fatigue than you had previously. So if loads are decreasing, that's another yes or no question. Is your stress worse than normal? Don't need to spend a lot of time on this. I talked about earlier how stress can affect people, uh, even when it's just subjectively experienced, right? So if stress is worse than normal, that's yes or no. And then finally, are your aches and pains worse than normal? Yes or no. So any combination of two of those things or more, and I go, you know what, we should probably take a deload week. Um, and then another kind of rule of thumb I have is if you've gone through three mesocycles and you have said, you know, no to all these questions, let's just do it just in case, you know, especially if you're progressing. Cause I mean, there is sufficient overload. Mm -hmm. So like I typically run three week blocks and then I give them a, the, the, the post block assessment. So my athletes are never going more than nine weeks before they take a B load. Okay. And that's kind of like a just in case metric, but it, it might happen, you know, every fourth week, it might happen, you know, 
more often than not, it'll be like, oh, I'm good this block. All right, we'll do another block. Okay, now I need to de deload. Oh, we'll go this block. So it's like every three to nine weeks is kind of, or like I guess it'd be four to 10 weeks is when, when it pops up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I really like that idea of having the, uh, you know, have a, having a checklist where you look at multiple factors because, yeah, just because, you know, one thing doesn't line up, like maybe you don't lift as much in one session doesn't mean that it's time to take a deload necessarily. But when you start seeing these factors coming together in aggregate, then then you want to start thinking about, you know, maybe it's time for some fatigue offloading. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say about muscle specific deloads is it doesn't mean I don't think you can do them, but I think they should be viewed differently. Hmm. Right. So let's say um, you've got a janky knee or let's just say, man, this muscle group seems really fatigued. Maybe you weren't effectively training it previously. Like you just weren't hitting your quads effectively. Like you were doing mostly free weight compounds and you kind of good morning that now you finally found a nice hack squat uh, and it is really blowing up your quads. Um, and they haven't developed that same uh, resistance to fatigability, right? They don't have the same repeated bout effect because of that. Yeah, man, like you, you, could, you could totally just deload the, the hack squats if you're great everywhere else. But I had to kind of create the scenario where that makes sense. Like most experienced trainers aren't getting that on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. More often than not, they're getting like joint related pain. And yeah, if like everything's good to go, but squats are bugging your hip. Yeah, next muscle cycle, don't do squats. You don't necessarily need to, need to deload, right? So they can be used in conjunction. You can identify specific issues and do a muscle or movement specific deload. And then also, you know, do that post-block uh, auto-regulated uh, kind of uh, checklist that I, that I described because the main, the, the people who I've heard pr promote using muscle specific deloads, they critique the deload because they go, look, it's, it's removing the opportunity to create stimulus for everything, even though not everything might be messed up. And I, and, and my advice would be, well, it doesn't need to be black or white. Like if, if that's happening and you can identify that it's a one specific issue, then yeah, use that muscle specific deload like you are. But then also when you're in a position where you're overall beat up, take a deload, you know, it doesn't have to be either or and probably shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I think that sometimes, you know, I, th I think sometimes in these cases, you know, if you, if you are consistently seeing that certain muscle groups are not fatigued by the end of your muscle cycle, then you might want to pay attention to your programming and maybe like, like, like jump up the volume or whatever for a certain muscle group but yeah if you're in a situation where it's just like everything else is going great and you just have you know a sore elbow or something then it can make a lot of sense to you know target things specifically but yeah i think that was really helpful for people so yeah i think wrapping up here that was a awesome episode again you know we're getting to really interesting topics now so this is tons of fun um one last fun question What's your favorite bodybuilding pose? Or well, that's gotta be the back double, back double bicep for me, man. Mm -hmm. Easily. I think that is the, uh, that's where you can see someone's hard work. Yeah. You know, you kill the it. muscles you, you can it. see in the mirror. Um, those ones people normally have a better mind muscle connection with. That's more your casual gym goers focus, you know, your chest and arms. Um, but when someone has well-developed lats, a lot of detail on their back, a Christmas tree, hamstring development and glute development. And you can see it all. They put in the work in the gym and the kitchen. They've been able to be objective. 
uh, and they've focused on their crafts, they can get a good mind-muscle connection and muscle groups that are normally hard to do that. Um, it also shows that they train their calves. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think the, uh, the, the, the real ones are the ones who can look good in the back double bicep. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You can't get away with anything, not even calves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I'm going to call it, call it close to this one. I think that it providing tons of value here and it's been a pleasure having Eric on again, as usual, where can people find you, Eric? As always, you can find me at 3dmusclejourney.com. Nice. Uh, that is the, the number three, the letter D, and then musclejourney.com. Uh, and that's where you can find all the stuff that's related to this, these topics, the books, mass research review, as well as at the 3DMJ Vault courses that walk you through step-by-step -step with one of our coaches or a specialist teaching you how to you know, implement a lot of these things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So yeah, I'll put those links in the description. And thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.